This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plots. I see no reason why gunpowder and treason should ever be forgot. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning to you. It is 9am on Saturday, the 4th of November 2023. We are here in a rain-battered Gloucestershire as we kind of deal with the aftermath of Storm Kiran. Um, I must say, in my part of the world, we have been very, very lucky um, over the past 48 hours compared to what we've been seeing in the news about other places in the UK and in Europe at large, um, we have got away almost scot-free, I must say, particularly specifically where I am in the county. Um, We've had some relatively heavy rain, although nothing that I wouldn't expect for this time of November. We have had um, a few winds, but nothing as, as... bad as um, the weather has been predicting. It's all been relatively calm, Touchwood, he says, because I am aware, having just checked the weather before coming on this morning, um, that flood warnings do remain in place. There are still yellow weather warnings throughout the UK, um, lasting through until midnight tonight. And so I will say, I hope that if you are affected by the storm, if you're affected by the weather in any way, I hope you are currently safe. Do stay safe and do whatever you need to do in order to remain safe. We have seen in the news reported about schools having to close for various reasons. Um, You know, school buildings which were already unsafe because of um, the material they were built out of being under threat. Schools, of course, have legal obligations to be able to provide specific things, running water, functioning toilet facilities, hot food at lunchtime, and schools that are unable to provide those things um, for whatever reason should close down, should close their buildings and send the children home. And so that's been happening in areas where schools have been without water, without electricity, without the ability to to provide hot meals. Um, so it has been it has been a real experience over the past couple of days. Uh, and of course it is not just the UK that is being battered or that has been battered by this storm. We've heard about um, deaths in Europe, five in Italy 
I believe was the number that I saw this morning. Um, as well as in other places, it's it's really been quite scary. It's really been quite scary. According to um, the news that's been put out by Sky, that's kind of just what I've got open, what I'm looking at here this morning. Um, there is There were 38 flood warnings and 171 flood alerts put in place across the UK yesterday evening, that's Friday evening, with river levels high, uh, ground saturated and large waves battering the coast. It is quite interesting, actually, if you look at a river map, of the UK, how many rivers we have. Um, we are a very wet country, not because of the amount of rain that we get, which I maintain is not as much as um, our stereotype is. I never seem to see the amount of rain that other people claim we get. Um, but just in terms of the number of waterways that we have, the rivers, the canals, um, all of that sort of thing. And it does mean that we have towns, cities, exposed to quite high flood risks whenever we've got weather like this going on. Um, these flood warnings and these alerts mostly covered the south coast, uh, Sky News says, but also parts of Wales, Scotland, East Anglia, the Midlands and the northeast of England are affected. By 4pm on Thursday, 150,000 homes have been left without power. Um, and, oh, no, I apologise, I misread that. In total, 150,000 homes have been left without power, and by 4pm on Thursday, 11,300 of those still had no electricity. Um, the Energy Networks Association, the ENA, said that they were working very hard. It was very difficult for them to work in difficult conditions, but their teams were out across the country trying to reconnect customers as and when it was safe for them to do so. Uh, the Met Office has suggested that the worst of it is now out of the way, that the storm is moving off, um, it's moving into the North Sea and is weakening, uh, which means that hopefully we are over the worst. Uh, but residents in Jersey uh, continue to be urged to stay home and all schools in Jersey are closed. Uh, the airport remains shut, um, as of last night at least, with only emergency flights allowed. Um, schools in Guernsey and Alderney are open, with the exception of one which suffered significant water damage. And the Channel Islands have been enduring something called supercell thunderstorms, where residents have faced lightning, large hailstones, and a possible tornado. Um, Jersey residents have cited hailstones bigger than golf balls that had broken windows on property. Um, schools in Cornwall remained closed yesterday due to extensive flooding and time was needed to dry and clean the buildings so that children could return safely. And that's something else that we need to think about. The fact that, you know, while the weather may have subsided and while buildings may look like they are safe to get back into, to get children back into, ground staff, caretakers, they need to be able to work safely with their teams in order to make sure that the school is ready and appropriate to be up and running and that takes time 
you know, we shouldn't be expecting our caretakers, we shouldn't be expecting our ground staff, our maintenance staff to put themselves at risk in order to get the buildings up and running, especially when, as I keep saying, there are alternatives, you know, for, for homes that still had electricity, access to internet, online schooling was an option, has been an option. Um, over this weekend, currently being reported, we should still see showers. Um, it's saying that longer spells of rain will continue across northeast of Scotland and parts of the Pennines, um, but will be quieter the further south it goes. The northwest will continue to see showers over the weekend, as will the northeast of Scotland. Um, this afternoon, Saturday afternoon, the yellow weather warning for rain will continue to cover, cover the south of England, including Portsmouth and Brighton, um, and rain and gusts of wind are expected to continue to cause travel disruption. So if you are traveling this weekend, please do be careful. Hopefully, as the, the Met Office have, uh, has suggested, we are over the worst of it. Um, but it does kind of remind us of how fragile everything is. It reminds us that we can get so caught up in the pettiness of life. We can get so caught up in whether or not we think um, mobile phones should be banned in classrooms. And we can have arguments about that on Twitter and there can be fallings out and things can get quite nasty. But actually, that's tiny. In, in the grand scheme of things, whether or not you as an individual teacher like a mobile phone being used in the classroom, it means nothing. Because we have got these huge weather systems happening. We live on a very active planet. We live in all kinds of conditions with all kinds of personal circumstances that are much bigger than the small grievances that we have. And I think while I don't like toxic positivity, I've talked on the show before about toxic positivity, um, and I don't like the implication of, oh, you know, these people have lost their homes, but let's try and look on the bright side. I do believe in trying to learn lessons from as many things as possible. Um, that's why I'm a teacher. And I think one of the things that we can learn from the storm, one of the things that, that we can just have as a bit of a reminder over everything we've seen over the last 48 hours is how quickly things can turn, how quickly the weather can get out of control. And that actually all that matters is that we are safe, the children that we are trying to teach are kept safe. And whether that means closing school buildings, whether that means shifting to online learning again, whether that means keeping children in school longer than you might, keeping schools open for longer so that children can be fed because their homes don't have power. That's what should be the priority. That's what we should be looking at. Um, and it is always sad that a weather system is needed, some kind of big catastrophe, as we have seen over the past couple of days, is needed in order to remind us of that. But, you know, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. I would like to say good morning to the hour of my testimony. testimony I'm sorry, who texted in to say good morning. A very good morning to you. 
You can, as always, text in if you are listening live on the Podbean app to engage with the show. I am more than happy to hear from you today and always. If you are not listening live on Podbean, but you are listening to us elsewhere, or you are listening on playback, you are always welcome to tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-I-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. That's all one word. Uh, with any of your thoughts on what we are talking about today. Because as I say every week, the things that I choose to talk about on the show are things that I think are important in education, are things that I find interesting in education. And so just because a show is a year old, two years old, five years old, hopefully, um, you know, if if Tom, who I see is in the audience this morning, if he's willing to keep me around for five years, I will be more than happy to um, to reach my fifth anniversary here on the show. But whenever you might be listening, please do interact because I am always willing to talk about any of the topics that we have ever covered here on the show. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service, known as UCAS. The students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive Sander Crystal described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure, which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas, which is up by only 2%. However, the total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. 
a drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was in the news again this week as she told English schools that parents have a right to view the sex education materials which are being taught in schools. The announcement comes as the government is due to launch a public consultation into relationships, sex and health education. Guidance has been in place since the subject became compulsory in primary and secondary schools in September 2020. But Ms Keegan said she wanted to debunk the myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Jeff Barton of Askell said he agreed with transparency on RSHE materials and that this is key, but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States, but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13 and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit. In addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador Hamza Yassin will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean or keep them warm, the BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom receive free uniform, trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families described themselves as living in non-secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in B&B accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, The Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution including physical ill health, mental illness, school absence and poor behaviour. Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as one in ten school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021-22. to 22. 
Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face in recruitment and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the DFE have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Okay, so clearly the first part of my show was not as interesting as I thought it was. Not everybody appreciates the weather because the cat who has joined me in the studio this morning has fallen asleep on my lap. So I am going to apologise if you hear snoring sounds in the background because she is not the quietest sleeper in the world. Um, And I am going to ask you not to follow suit. And if you could try and stay awake um, throughout the rest of my show, not follow Pearl's example, I would very much appreciate that. Um, I did comment on the SRE um, news on Twitter, but I'm going to do it again here, uh, both because it fits in with the theme of our show today. I'm talking about teaching controversial topics today, Um, but also just because I like to repeat myself. I'm a teacher and it's what we do. I repeat myself quite often. Um, I find it very strange if I have to say something new that I've never said before. And so I'm going to fall into that comfort here. And just say that I remember being in year five uh, when I did my SRE. Uh, and it was a a topic because, you know, topic-based learning was all the rage when I was at school. So we did a whole topic for our SRE. Um, and it was called Our Changing Bodies because, you know, we were, we were nine and ten years old. And I remember taking a letter home, bringing a letter home. Um, from school to my parents, which said that if my parents wanted to borrow the VHS that we were going to be shown, um, if they wanted to see the photocopyable materials that uh, the school was going to use for our project, then all they had to do was have me send the letter back in and I would be able to bring the SRE materials home for my parents to look at. Uh, This was in the mid-90s, so I was in year five in in the academic year 1994 to 1995. So this idea that schools keep their SRE materials under lock and key, that we never ever share what we're doing in SRE with parents, is nonsense. And while that's not necessarily the view that is being perpetuated, the fact that somebody has had to come out and say, we are going to make sure that schools are making their SRE materials available to parents, kind of plants that seed in the government's mind, uh, sorry, in the public's mind. Uh, Good morning to you, David. David has texted in. Uh, Very nice to have you listening today. It is going good here. Um, we are all very well. We are just thinking this morning about the the teaching of controversial topics. So I'm very glad, very glad to have you here. But yeah, the, the idea that the Minister for Education feels the need to come out and say, we are going to make sure that schools make these um, materials shareable, make these materials accessible, does suggest to people who don't know um, you know, maybe people whose child, whose own children are long out of school, maybe people whose children have not yet started school, maybe people who don't have children and so have no reason to know about how schools work at the moment. It plants into their head this idea that we don't share the materials. And this is, I'm going to get on my linguist soapbox now, 
This is why language is important. And this is why media literacy and language literacy, as, as redundant as that sounds, is so important and needs to be taught. Because I, I, hmm, I don't think, I hope that people don't make these sweeping statements without knowing what they're saying. I hope that before these statements are made, they are written by the person making the statement, then checked and checked and checked again. And so it should be that people know the messages that they are putting out. People quite often know how they can use language to manipulate. People quite often know that if they choose certain words, they can not lie, but they can present the truth in the way that they want it to be presented. They can present the truth in the way that is true to them. It's kind of what language does. Language exists so that we can communicate our reality, our perception to other people. And I'm not saying that we need to be suspicious of everybody. I'm not saying that we need to read multiple meanings into everything that everybody ever says to us. But we do also need to be aware that everybody has an agenda. Everybody has a bias. I'm, I have a bias right now because my bias is that people can use their language to make you think the way they want you to think, and you should be aware of that. That is my bias. I think that's important. And so I'm, I'm using my platform to, to advocate for that literacy, uh, for that understanding. And I think if we don't understand that, it's very easy just to blindly believe what we are told, blindly believe what we read, or blindly not believe it and start shouting fake news at people um, without actually thinking about the political interests, the social interests, the what is to be gained by these statements being made and what is true about these statements being made. Because, you know, the education secretary hasn't lied. The schools should be making their SRE materials available to parents. And parents do actually need to know if schools are no longer sending out that message, because you know you do it for so many years, to you it becomes obvious that this should be allowed, but it might not be obvious to parents who are sending their first children through school, because that happens. Um, that's the message that, that is being put out, that's a message that should be being put out. But we also have to wonder, how is it being interpreted? How is it being spun? How is it being taken in? Because what you will say, what you mean, and what is being heard is not always the same thing. As we know, we know this from our children. We know that our children will very often take what we say and either through not listening or just through their own layers of interpretation, understand something different. That's at the simplest level, that's where teaching misconceptions comes from. And at a deeper level, that's where children can start to really be quite nasty about teachers and twist things that teachers have said. You know, we see things at both ends of the scale. 
And so we need to make sure that our young people, and not just our young people, but our young adults and our middle-aged people and our elderly people and everybody continues to be aware that we shouldn't disbelieve everything just because somebody has said it. But that behind everything that is said, particularly in a public forum, there is going to be a spin, there is going to be a bias, and we have to figure out where the truth of what we are hearing lines up with our own truths. And so that brings me on to, quite nicely, what I want to talk about today, because as I have mentioned many, many times um, on the show before, we do not have very many festivals here in England. Um, we have just had Halloween this past week. Um, it has been All Saints and All Souls Day since then that some people will have marked, but not everybody. Uh, we have Bonfire Night tomorrow, the 5th of November. Uh, for our international listeners, if you're not sure what Bonfire Night is, don't worry, I'm going to explain, because that's the, the crux of my show today. That's kind of what I've built my show around today. Uh, and then we kind of have nothing until Christmas. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine in the US um, midweek. Uh, we were talking about Thanksgiving and kind of the time that, you know, he was trying to plan um, his work around Thanksgiving break and then the Christmas break. And he said, you know, it's it's really weird to him to think that for for me, the, uh, the third Thursday in November is just going to be a normal working day. Whereas for him, it will be a four-day weekend. Um, and he was like, he logically knows that we don't have Thanksgiving. He logically knows that we don't need Thanksgiving. But it's weird to him because it's such a, an, an ingrained part of American culture. It seems weird to him that we don't have that celebration, that we will just carry on working. And of course, we don't have that celebration. We kind of, after tomorrow... We really have nothing until Christmas. And then, as I've lamented before, we, after Christmas, we have New Year. And then we will have nothing really until Easter. So we have these kind of spaced out, few and far between moments. Um, but tomorrow is bonfire night. Tomorrow is Guy Fawkes. Now, for those of you who don't know, or maybe do know, but have forgotten, or maybe only have a, a cursory knowledge because you've not really thought about Guy Fawkes since you studied him when you were in year one, when you were five years old. I'm going to tell you the story really quickly. I'm going to give you a kind of overview of exactly what this is all about. So there's this man, Guy Fawkes. Okay? He was born in York in 1570. Um, he was the son of a man named Edward, who was a church lawyer and a prominent Protestant in York, um, and of Edith, a woman whose family included Catholics, um, and they were Catholic in secret. Now, again, if you are not 
particularly familiar with English history or this time in English history. And again, I will point out I'm a linguist and a classicist. I'm not a a historian. My kind of in-depth knowledge of history ends at the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, So I am certainly not an authority on this. But at this time in England, there was a lot of religious upheaval where our national religion was changing and it seemed to change almost every time there was a new monarch. We were going back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism, which are both Christianity, both forms of Christianity, but have very, very different viewpoints on how worship should take place. And so at the time Guy Fawkes was born, so in 1570, Protestantism was the official religion of England and Catholics had to worship in secret. Um, and, And so Guy was born into this kind of religious turmoil where there were Catholics in England, there were people who were happily practicing Catholicism, but had to do so in secret because to practice religion in that way was against the law. Um, Guy had two brothers, John and Christopher. That's important. That will come into play a bit later on. Uh, Now, at this time, like I said, it was both illegal to be Catholic and dangerous. Many plots, many rebellions were being led against Queen Elizabeth I, who was the monarch when Guy Fawkes was born. Um, She was a staunchly Protestant monarch, and it was mostly Catholics who were leading these rebellions, Catholics who wanted a Catholic monarch restored to the English throne. And so on the whole, Catholics were being blamed for what these few people were doing. One of the things that is fascinating about history, um, and I find this in classical history, as well as the little bit that I know about, about modern, more recent history, is how often these themes repeat themselves. You know, there's the old saying in English, um, if you don't learn from history, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that seems to be so true because throughout history, we get these small bands of people who have one defining feature in common, religion, race, whatever it might be. And then everybody in the area who shares that protected characteristic with those people are blamed for that thing. And they have reprisals for that thing. And I don't, understand why we don't learn that lesson. I don't understand how we can look at history, how we can look at the time scale of the past 2000 years, let's say, and not see this repeated pattern and go, hmm, there's a problem here. But anyway, that's kind of where we are. Uh, that's where we were with, um, with Guy at this time. So to all outward appearances, uh, the Fawkes family were perfectly law-abiding, perfectly Protestant, uh, doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing religiously. Um, 
both a pun and not a pun. While these Catholics who were trying to, um, who were leading plots against Queen Elizabeth I were being caught, were being tried, were being executed, whilst Catholic priests who had absolutely nothing to do with the plots at all were caught leading Catholic services and also being tortured and executed just for practicing their religion in the way that they wanted to. But when Guy was eight years old, so we're now about 1578, um, his father Edward died. His mother remarried, um, as was very common at the time because women were generally not working. And so a woman with three children um, needed some kind of income. Um, so she remarried and she married a man called um, Dionysius Bainbridge and he was a Catholic. And this had a huge impact on eight-year-old Guy. He found himself strongly drawn to Catholicism and even though he knew that it was dangerous to be a Catholic, he did convert. And the family then became practicing Catholics. Now, at the age of 21, he was so enamored by his religion and he was so steadfast in his belief that Catholicism should be the reigning, the dominant form of Christianity, that he went to Europe to fight on the side of Spain, which was a Catholic country, against the Dutch Reformation. They were Protestants in the Eight Years' War. And that's where he earned his Spanish name, Guido. So sometimes you'll hear him called Guy, which was his English name, and sometimes you'll hear him referred to as, as Guido or Guido, which was his Spanish name. He grew up to be very handsome and very charismatic. Um, we are told by his contemporaries that he was a man of great piety, of exemplary temperance, of mild and cheerful demeanour, an enemy of broils and disputes, a faithful friend, and remarkable for his punctual attendance upon religious observance. So he grew up really to be a pillar of the Catholic community. He also grew up to be a very good-looking man, by all accounts. He was tall, he was strong, he had thick red-brown hair, he had a thick beard, he had an impressive moustache. He was, he was very imposing. He was, by all Elizabethan and um, uh, Jacobean accounts, very good-looking, very charismatic. He was the kind of person that people wanted to be associated with, that they wanted to follow. Now, he met in Spain an Englishman by the name of Thomas Wintour, who was trying to recruit allies to join a group of Catholic conspirators in England who were being led by his cousin, uh, a man called Robert Catesby, or Catesby, I think it's Catesby. Uh, now, of course, Fawkes was perfect for this. Guy was perfect because he was a very devout Catholic. He very much believed in the, the cause, as it were. He very much believed in a Catholic Europe. 
And because he was good looking and charismatic, he could potentially be relied upon to convert people either to Catholicism or to the cause. So Guy and Thomas, um, they, they formed a very great friendship. And in 1604, they returned to England, which was now being ruled by King James I. Um, who had come to the, the English throne in 1603. So King James I, of course, had already been King of Scotland. Queen Elizabeth I died without having children. So there was no um, direct heir of hers to take the English throne. So the throne went to James VI of Scotland, um, and he became the first joint king of England and Scotland. Now, Catholics in England had hoped that this change of monarch would bring the end to their religious persecution because King James's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had been a devout Catholic. However, James I himself was a Protestant and he was not particularly tolerant of Catholicism at all. Um, by all accounts, things actually got worse for Catholics under his reign. And so the conspirators, um, including Guy, now decided they needed to up their game a little bit. They decided on drastic measures. So they decided that they would attempt to blow up Parliament during the state opening on the 5th of November. And the reason that they went for that was that King James and the Queen and his heir would all be present at the state opening of Parliament. And so by killing all three of them, as well as the parliamentarians, they are essentially opening up claims to the throne. The conspirators hoped that the king's younger daughter, uh, Princess Elizabeth, could then be crowned and she could be coerced into embracing Catholicism and making England and Scotland Catholic countries. So this group of men so Fawkes, uh, Catesby and Winter are the cousins. Winter's brother Robert, um, his brother-in-law John Grant, second cousin Francis Tresham, uh, and his servant Thomas Bates, um, a childhood friend of Guy Fawkes, uh, childhood friends of Guy Fawkes by the names of Christopher and John Wright, and their brother-in-law Thomas Percy, um, a man named Everett Digby, a man named Ambrose Rookwood, and a man named Robert Keyes, they all got together and came up with this plot to blow up Parliament. Now, unfortunately for Guy, nobody in that group knew anything about gunpowder apart from him. So Guy had been involved in explosives from his time in the military. Uh, from his time in Spain. So he knew all about it. He knew what he was doing, whereas another, none of the other men involved did. And you kind of have to wonder 
whether Guy was used as a bit of a scapegoat. Because it does seem odd to me, kind of through my modern lens, that you've got this group of men plotting to blow up the Houses of Parliament. None of them know about it. None of them know about blowing stuff up. None of them understand gunpowder. Oh, but conveniently, here is this one man that does. And you have to wonder whether they had plotted to pin everything on Guy if it went wrong. I don't know. I've got no proof of that. There is nothing in the extant history, as far as I know, to prove that. It does just seem a bit odd to me that Guy was the only one in this whole group that knew anything about gunpowder. But as he was, he was the one who was chosen to set the fuse in the cellars underneath the Houses of Parliament. And they very nearly got away with it. So they managed to get down into the cellars underneath Parliament. They managed to fill them with these barrels of gunpowder. And they even managed to get down there ready to blow it up. However, an anonymous letter was sent to the authorities in late October that suggested that the king and his family and the Protestant ministers were all under attack, were all at threat. Um, the letter reads, an extract from the letter reads, they shall receive a terrible blow, this parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. In that really lovely, kind of overwrought, over-the-top Tudor style, um, where nothing is actually said, but everything is implied. I love it. It all seems so mysterious. And so Royal Guards searched the House of Lords at midnight and during the early hours of the morning on the 5th of November, where Guy was discovered hidden in the cellars with a fuse, a lamp, uh, a small box of matches and 36 barrels of gunpowder. Um, he was arrested and he was taken to the king. When the king asked him what he was doing in the cellars, he, he was honest. He said, oh, I, I want to blow up the Scottish king and all of the Scottish lords. I want to blow the Scottish king and all of his lords back to Scotland, is what he is reported as saying. Um, and he said that he regretted failing. And King James I, in an act that I, I really admire, I've got a lot of time for King James I, I must say, um, but in an act that I think a lot of people could learn from, he said that even though he was insulted by what Guy was about to do, he was impressed by how brave he was. And, and I think that is quite a good piece of shade to throw on somebody to say, yeah, you tried to blow me up. Not happy about that, but I'm quite impressed that you had the guts to try it. Uh, Guy was taken to the Tower of London, where he was imprisoned and interrogated. And of course, at this time, so in the early 1600s, when we say interrogated, we mean tortured. Um, torture, though, did have to be authorised specifically by the monarch 
or the Privy Council. And in Guy's case, it was authorized by the king himself. He said, if he will not otherwise confess, the gentler tortures are first to be used upon him, and then step by step you may employ the harsher, and so speed your good work. So James had no issue with saying, yep, go ahead, torture him if he won't confess. So the gentler tortures did indeed fail. And even though we don't know, it's highly likely that Guy was put on the rack. Now, the rack was this device that was designed to inflict pain on limbs and joints because limbs were pulled in opposite directions until the joints were dislocated or eventually separated. Um, Guy held out for several days, but eventually the torture got too much for him and he signed the confession. And this is one of the ways that we know exactly how bad the torture was. I mean, we can imagine, we can empathise, but we know because we have examples of his signature. And there's quite a nice example of his signature before he was tortured, uh, which is completely legible. And then his signature on his confession, which is entirely illegible. Um, and interestingly, he signs his name as Guido. He doesn't sign Guy. He signs his Spanish name. So he was kind of sticking with his, his European sympathies, his Spanish sympathies, his Catholic sympathies right through to the end. Um, while Guy was being tortured, because of course he was the only one that had been caught, his other conspirators fled to the Midlands. They eventually were caught by the High Sheriff of Worcestershire on the morning of the 8th of November. Um, Robert Catesby, the Wright brothers and Thomas Percy were all shot dead while they were caught and the other conspirators were taken to the Tower of London. Um, Fawkes and his surviving co-conspirators were all tried and sentenced for treason. And of course, at this time, the automatic penalty for treason was execution. And on the 31st of January, 1606, the men were dragged behind a horse along the streets of London to Westminster Yard, where they were hanged, drawn and quartered. Um, Fawkes, because he was the most famous of the plotters by this point, because of course all of the reports had been about him because he was the one who had been caught, he was the one who had been tortured, he was the one who had confessed. He was the last to go up to the gallows to be hanged. Um, and a contemporary account says, last of all came the great devil of all, Guy Fawkes, alias Johnson, who should have put fire to the powder. His body being weak with the torture and sickness, he was scarce able to go up the ladder, yet with much ado by the help of the hangman, went high enough to break his neck by the fall. He made no speech, but with his crosses and idle ceremonies made his end upon the gallows and the block, to the great joy of all the beholders that the land was, so en was ended of so wicked a villainy. So again, even to the end, Guy was showing that that Roman spirit, that Roman bravery that King James confessed to admiring and administered to himself what appears to me to be the last rites. So he was sticking with his religious conviction 
right to the end. Um, in January of 1606, so it couldn't have been that long after the execution happened, James I passed a, a Thanksgiving Act, ironically, given that when I started this story, I was talking about how in the UK we don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, but he actually passed a Thanksgiving Act to celebrate the end of the gunpowder plot. Um, it was called the Observance of the 5th of November Act 1605, and it enshrined in law a special church service, bonfires and fireworks. So it became legal in the UK, it was, uh, sorry, in England, it was a legal requirement in England, and I assume Scotland, although I don't know, so if anybody does know, please let me know, because I would be interested to find out, um, that the 5th of November should be celebrated as a holiday. And that law actually remained in force until 1859. So it wasn't until 1859 that the 5th of November stopped being a public holiday and just became an observance, an optional observance. And celebrations do still play, take place today. And they start earlier and earlier. You know, there have already been fireworks. There have been fireworks going off, certainly on my estate a week. Um, they have... And I was talking to somebody about this earlier on in the week. Um, they have um, been diluted a little. You don't get penny for the guy anymore. So it used to be that you would, when I was younger, you would build an effigy of Guy Fawkes, a bit like a scarecrow. And you would take him house to house and you would knock on the door and you would ask a penny for the guy and you would get sweets or small coins, small change. Um, that, of course, now has been replaced by trick-or-treating, so you don't see that anymore. But then on bonfire night, you would throw your effigy of Guy Fawkes onto the bonfire, um, kind of as a way of remembering, of memorialising his death. And, and I suppose, according to the law, giving thanks for the fact that it failed. Although it seems interesting to me, as a, as a non-Catholic, that we would continue to memorialize this man, to enshrine this man um, for his failure. And, and I think it's, it's the Catholicism that really gets to me about this, because for all of that time, for 250 years, Catholics in this country were being reminded by being forced to take a holiday of the fact that not only had their religion, had their forms of worship been outlawed for so long in this country, but they were being blamed, they were being scapegoated for all of these plots against the monarchy. And then this failed plot was still being fetid every year. And, and it seems to me so sad that there was this kind of enshrined in law annual reminder to the Catholics in this country of that really horrible history that they had been through. And I think the more I think about it and kind of the more the more I reflect on it as I'm talking to you all, the more I suppose I'm glad that the the celebration has been replaced by Halloween, that we have kind of taken on the American traditions, because it means at least 
we are less centered around that kind of negative memorial. We are less centered around that, that controversy. Um, and it is the controversy that I kind of want to talk about. And that is what we will discuss in the next part of the show. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So, we have these controversial things that are part of our history, that are part of our culture. And, you know, obviously I'm talking to you today from an English context. I am English, I still live in England, uh, so I'm talking from my experience. But every country, every culture has these controversial things that <clears throat> make up where that country has come from. And we see it all the time, you know, in the advert that we just heard, there are resources being put out about Andrew Tate because that is a very controversial figure. He is a very controversial figure and his use of social media is very controversial. What is currently happening in the news in the Middle East is very controversial. I, as a languages teacher, even putting aside the, the classics that I teach, and of course, in classics, we have issues of empire, we have issues of uh, conquer, we have issues of colonization. Even putting that aside, in modern languages, you know, in, in German, just a few weeks ago, I was teaching my year eights about um, German Unity Day, which is a national holiday in Germany on the 3rd of October. And, and I was having to teach them about World War II and about the Berlin Wall and, and, and what happened to Germany and what happened in Germany as a result of the end of the war. And, and you know, we had to talk about capitalism and communism and, and opposing ideologies. In, in French, at A-level, we teach Lion, which is a film about um, very specific rioting that happened in France. We teach the... Um, we teach the role of France in World War II. We teach about the Vichy regime. There are all of these controversial things that, that regardless of our subject, we have to cover with our students. And sometimes that can be 
um, really difficult. Tim has texted in, good morning to you. Um, I read in the week that Bonfire Night was the closest thing England ever came to having a national holiday. And that made me really sad for the same reasons you've outlined. I'm quite relieved it's falling out of favour. That is really interesting because, of course, in England, we don't have a national holiday. And that itself is something that is quite controversial, um, particularly around St. George's Day. Every year, people will talk about how St. George's Day should be a national holiday in England. Um, of course, national holidays tend to be holidays where countries feel that they have been liberated from something. They are quite often um, Independence Day. You know, again, if we take the US example, the 4th of July, their Independence Day, their national holiday is about their independence from England. Um, the French national holiday, Bastille Day, Le 14 Juillet, that's about their liberation from what was seen as a tyrannical monarchy. And I suppose in England, we are grateful enough. We are, um, I hope we're grateful enough. That's not what I wanted to say. I hope we're grateful enough. <laughs> we are um, blessed, I suppose, to not really have needed that liberation. You know, we were conquered by the Romans, uh, but they then just kind of left us. They, they had enough and went back to Rome. And so we fell into the dark ages. Um, and so we, we haven't needed that, that liberation. And I think viewing Guy Fawkes through that lens, we should be relieved that it never really took off as being our national holiday, because you have to wonder what we would have been being relieved of at that point, given that it was failure. Although I must say, having our national holiday be the commemoration of failure is probably the most English thing in the world because we do love an underdog story in this country. We do love somebody who tries and doesn't quite make it. Um, and I wonder whether that would have had an impact on how we now view Guy Fawkes. I wonder if he would have become a, a Mr Bean type figure remembered specifically for his failure rather than for the attempt and for what he was trying to do. But yeah, I think given given the history of it, given the religious issues that are around it, it probably is a good thing that it, uh, that it never became our national holiday. But in teaching, controversy, controversy, however you want to pronounce it, cannot be avoided. Historians can argue about what happened. As teachers, we can look at these things through our own lenses, through our own biases, kind of like I was talking about, again, half an hour or so ago, about how our language frames our biases. So as well as how we speak, controlling our viewpoint, how we, uh, how we interpret events controls our viewpoint, and our viewpoint controls how we interpret events. And, and academic historians, I suppose, can avoid dealing 
with some of the more recent history, some of the more recent controversies by just not specializing in them. You know, as, as a classicist, my specialty is Greek and Roman religion and mythology. And so while there are certain controversial elements within there, such as the rise of Christianity and the syncretism and whether it was good that the Romans took on the religion of the countries they conquered or not, it is mostly just about cool stories and interesting characters. So as, as a classicist, I can avoid a lot of the 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 controversy about war about imperialism about all that sort of thing because that's not the area of it that interests me but of course as teachers where you don't just talk about the one specific thing that interests you in your subject but you've got to cover the whole thing we can't avoid these controversies we can't avoid these things in our subjects Science teachers cannot avoid talking about climate change. Language teachers cannot avoid talking about climate change. In the IGCSE, one of the topics that we have to talk about is environment. One of the questions that I ask in my speaking exam is, what do you do to help protect the environment? And, you know, we, we, we have to have that whole conversation. It used to be something we talked about in MFL at A-level. So all across the curriculum, there are these, these controversial things that we get our children thinking about, but that as teachers, we kind of, to some extent, have to sit on the fence about because we're not allowed to um, give our political loyalty. We are not allowed to um, be seen to be leading our children one way or the other. And of course, our job is not to lead children. You know, we've had people come into the show before um, and, and, and ask me about the messages that I give my children, about whether I think um, schools are just these factories telling children what to think. And as I've said to those people, we're really not. It is not my job to tell children what to think about climate change. It's my job to get them thinking about it and to signpost them to lots of different resources and to give them the tools they need to make up their own minds. So it's not about telling children what to think. It's about teaching them how to think. It's about the how and not the what. But we do have these difficult things to talk about. And I think Guy Fawkes is one of them. Because when you're teaching Guy Fawkes, what do you pick up on? What do you teach? Do you spin it as a negative? Do you look at the fact that this was a man who was trying to kill all of these people for his own religious and political gains? And he was rightly uh, tried and sentenced for it. Do you spin it that he was, as I've just suggested, a tragic figure who was set up by his, his co-conspirators, uh, who unfortunately got caught because he failed, 
and was sentenced to a very, very nasty way to be executed. Do you spin it as, well, he failed, but at least he tried? <laughs> you know, he went for what he was, what he believed in. You know, do do we try and spill it in, spin it into a a a growth mindset of of people trying, people fail, but at least you will never never fail as badly as Guy Fawkes failed because he was executed, and it doesn't matter how badly you fail, that won't happen to you. How exactly do you teach? Guy Fawkes, what message are you trying to get out to the children? And I think, and I've actually changed my mind about this as I was speaking, and this is one of the things that I love about this show, and if any teacher listening ever has the opportunity to talk to other teachers, to lead a discussion, to lead an inset, to, to, to be on Teacher Talk Radio, and, and have a platform like I do, I strongly, strongly urge you to take it because it is through talking about these issues and examining all of the different viewpoints that you can broaden your own understanding of these things. Because I was going to say that in this country, we tend to teach Guy Fawkes at Key Stage 1 or Key Stage 2. So when the children are 11 years old at the earliest, and I wondered whether that was the right age to teach it, because you can't get a balanced viewpoint with it. You can't actually really teach about it. What you can do is teach that there was this man called Guy Fawkes, and he was going to blow up Parliament with some fireworks, and then maybe do some, some firework art. And I thought, is that doing the whole story a disservice? Is that meaning that the children are not really getting to grips with this particular part of history? Does it mean that people go through their lives thinking they know about Guy Fawkes because they learned about him in school, but actually they only have a very surface understanding, kind of like I do, quite honestly. But then actually, as I was just speaking with you, I realised that maybe that's the perfect time to teach it, because it means that you don't need to get into the nitty gritty of was he right, was he wrong? You don't need to get into the questions of should we have a monarchy? You know, that is a big question at the moment. When when Queen Elizabeth II passed a couple of years ago, there were conversations in all of the Commonwealth countries about should King Charles be ascending to the throne or should these countries start being republics? And and so that is something that, that our older children will have thought about, will have, have heard about and may well be thinking about. And I suppose at least teaching it to younger children who won't have had those experiences, won't have had that exposure, won't have that critical thought process, you can avoid those difficult conversations. But also having the difficult conversations is how you learn. And like I've just said, my mindset has been changed about when we should teach it from thinking we should teach it maybe key stage three, key stage four history down to, yes, actually, let's keep teaching it in year one and year two so that we can just make some lovely artwork from it, because that is easier. 
But then at what point do children actually learn about it? At what point do people actually learn about it? Because not everybody has the privilege that I do of being able to sit here on a Saturday morning and have their minds changed three times in the space of 10 minutes. It's a difficult one. It is very difficult. It is very difficult. And I hope that anyone who is not a teacher who listens to this kind of understands why the in inverted commas sanitized versions of history gets taught in school. Because we hear this a lot as educators. We're, we're constantly hearing, why were we not told about X, Y, and Z in school? Why were we taught this version of events instead of this version of events? And the answers boil down to two things. Either you're not developmentally ready when it comes up in the curriculum to handle a higher order concept, or it is quite frankly easier just to teach the surface level understanding. And I don't particularly want to risk my job, my livelihood, the fact that I have a mortgage to pay by teaching some of the more in-depth things, risking having what I've said be misconstrued and having angry parents coming in and demanding for me to be fired. And this is where the humanities at university level are so important. And this is why it's so sad and again, I, I'm recognizing my bias here as a classicist, as a linguist, because I am a humanities person. I'm not a STEM person. But this is where I feel it's really sad that STEM is being pushed so much to the detriment of humanities. Because it means that when people are ready to hear about what actually happened, when they are ready to hear about all of the nuances of the time frame and the society and the what may have been mental health issues of these people and how all of that melds together and how that panned out and what that might mean for what's happening now, there's no opportunity to do it because humanities has been defunded because our sixth form children are being told to study maths and sciences at A-level so that they can do medicine at university because being a doctor pays well and we need more of them. And don't get me wrong, we do need more doctors. NHS needs to be better funded. Doctors need to be better paid. But we also need to make sure that people understand history. We also need to make sure that people understand literature. We need to make sure that people understand linguistics. We need to make sure that people understand bias and spin, as I said at the top of the show. And getting rid of the humanities at degree level, where as a teacher, that concern about what you're teaching being misconstrued kind of gets taken away. It doesn't disappear because as we saw with Black Lives Matter, so many people, so many teachers at university level were being targeted, were being um, called out on social media for teaching with an agenda. 
so it doesn't disappear but it does become less career threatening i feel because the people that you are teaching are theoretically old enough to come to their own conclusions they are legal adults who can then come to their own conclusions about the things that you are teaching so does that mean i think that everything should be saved for university no of course not it's good to have a cursory understanding of 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 history um i remember i was in year two in the academic year 1991-1992 and um, we studied about Christopher Columbus because it had been 500 years since the 1492 Columbus sailed the oceans blue um, and so I knew about Christopher Columbus I knew about the Nina the Pinta the Santa Maria um, I didn't know about genocide of the Native Americans uh, because I was six years old and I didn't need to but that is something that my history lessons could have come back to and maybe that's what we need maybe we need a bit more cohesion maybe we need a more solid through line in the national curriculum where it's you're taught the basics of something at this age and then you're going to come back to it a little bit later when you are ready to understand the nuances of it a bit like how in languages i might teach full sentences using sentence builders i might teach the phrase i like to play rugby and my children just learn that as a sentence and then a few years later i will teach them the grammar of how that breaks down when they are ready for it when they're a bit more interested in it maybe i don't know i don't know and this is why i'm not education minister because i don't have an answer and, and I think because I don't have an answer, I don't have the right to be telling people what they should be doing and how they should be teaching. But I do think that we need to think very carefully about our controversial subjects. We need to think about not shying away from them because they are parts of history. They are things that happened. But we also have to make sure that we don't teach them so superficially that we end up thinking that something is a celebration when in fact the whole story is a lot more complicated a lot more complex uh, so how do people teach guy Fawkes? what actually are the activities that people are doing um i googled because it has been a long time since I was a primary teacher <clears throat> and I don't teach history at, at secondary level. So it's been a long time since I've had to teach Guy Fawkes. So I did some Googling and this is what I have found. So for anybody who might be looking for ideas for how to teach Guy Fawkes, here are some. For anybody who might not be and might just be interested in how these controversial subjects are taught um, this is what people are doing so at primary level you could do a sequencing activity uh, so the events of the gunpowder plot so again at a very simplistic level you could have guy fawkes meets the conspirators 
Guy Fawkes helps come up with a plan. The conspirators put the barrels of gunpowder underneath the Houses of Parliament. Guy Fawkes gets caught. Guy Fawkes gets executed. And mix them all up, and then children put them in sequence. Because, of course, children, young children especially, don't understand sequential time. And so the idea that this leads on to this, leads on to this, leads on to this, the idea of consequences is quite often new to them. And it's really important in historical thinking because everything has consequences. Uh, and it's understanding consequences that lets you put pieces of the puzzle together. It helps with critical thinking. So a nice sequencing activity would be good. And then, of course, in literacy, in English, if you're doing um, topic-based learning and your topic is Guy Fawkes, you can then teach sequencing words first, next, then, finally. You could do the same in modern languages if you wanted. D'abord, puis, enfin. Uh, with older primary students, actually the UK Parliament, and this was somewhere that I went first, um, because I was interested to see how the UK Parliament itself thinks Guy Fawkes should be taught. And they have a whole resource um, about Guy Fawkes. Their resource is quite a nice PowerPoint presentation that can be used for an assembly. Um, and there are versions available in English and in Welsh. Um, and they also have a video put out. So they've got a couple of nice resources uh, that looks in detail at the story of the plot and then introduces the concept of different perspectives. So there is a hot seating activity, which is always nice, particularly if you're struggling to bring in drama or bring in the speaking and listening element of English. They've got a good hot seating activity where you can interrogate a child playing King James I, a child playing Robert Catesby, and a child playing Guy Fawkes. And then can the children look at both sides of the story and give justifications for both sides? You can look at bonfire night celebrations. You can look at how elaborate fireworks have become over the years. You can look at how it's changed from being a bonfire, a toffee apple, and a, a local fireworks show into people having their own fireworks in their own gardens, into big uh, commercial displays that are being put on. You can put YouTube videos on of firework displays. You could then do a creative writing task about a fireworks party. You could do a maths task organising a fireworks party. This is your budget. This is how much stuff costs. And then, of course, you've got the good old art activities. Chalk on black paper, uh, wax crayon, wax uh, washed over with black paint uh, that you can then chip away at. That's always fun. Um, rockets made from kitchen roll tubes. Fake sparklers made out of straws and glitter. So all sorts of nice age-appropriate craft activities. Um, even science experiments. Obviously, don't build fireworks in your Key Stage 1 science lesson. But could you make a fake firework out of water, oil, and food colouring? 
could you look theoretically at the chemistry of fireworks and how they work? How actually does gunpowder explode? Look at the um, fireworks safety code. Does anybody remember those really scary adverts from like the late 80s and the early 90s about how you should never get too close to fireworks and everybody was absolutely going to be blown up if they walked too close to the fireworks? Um, you know, you could do a, a less traumatizing version of that. Um, in secondary, you can look at primary historical evidence. So we've got um, a lot of letters that were written. Guy was quite often referred to as John Johnson. Um, that was one of his pseudonyms. So you can look at letters that, uses, that use that name. Why did he go by a pseudonym? Why did he have so many different names? Um, there are lots of letters in the National Archives resources that you can refer to. Um, there's a TrueTube assembly video uh, that raises a number of debate questions, such as might it have been that the plotters were set up by the government to provide an excuse to crack down on Catholicism? As I asked, did the other conspirators set up Guy? Is it weird that he was the only one with a knowledge of fireworks? You, you are getting into conspiracy theory realms here, but then you could talk about conspiracy theories. You can talk about how sometimes when we look at history with a modern slant, we put these, these theories, these ideas onto it, maybe to make it more exciting, maybe to dramatise it, but actually, does it reflect the truth? Do we know? Will we ever know? And of course, just to finish off, as I always recommend, you can look at V for Vendetta. This time last year, my whole show was on V for Vendetta and how you can use comic books and graphic novels as children's literature. So if you are a primary teacher or an English teacher and you're interested in using comic books in the classroom, please do go back through the archives and find the show from whichever Saturday was closest to fireworks night last year, because we did do a whole show on that. And uh, Tim, who has just texted in, say that he still won't hold a sparkler. And I'm glad that you said that because I was beginning to, to worry that it was a bit of a... Um, a hallucination on my part that I was imagining these adverts. So I'm glad it's not just me. But Tim had uh, a lot of really good points. He made a lot of really good points in his contribution to that show um, about picture books and graphic novels. So you can use V for Vendetta and the iconography of the Guy Fawkes mask, that kind of plain white pointed chin triangular mask, the, the one that Anonymous kind of... Um, uh, appropriated. And you can use that as a whole sequence of lessons. There are all sorts of cool things that you can do with Guy Fawkes, around Guy Fawkes, all sorts of questions that you can that you can ask. All sorts of, of social issues can be raised through teaching these controversial topics. So I think my takeaway from this is not to shy away from controversial topics not to dumb them down, but to make sure that we teach them in ways that are age appropriate, that are developmentally appropriate, 
and that don't start scapegoating. Um, because, of course, it was scapegoating that led to the gunpowder plots to begin with. I could follow that chain through. This idea of scapegoating the Catholics led to discord amongst Catholic groups, which led to the desire for a Catholic monarch, which led to the gunpowder plot. That is it for me today. Uh, there will be no Saturday morning breakfast next week, because next week is my teaching Saturday. Um, so I will be with my year 10s and my year 11s during my show slot. Um, however, for the linguists amongst you, and actually anybody who might be interested in literature, you might be interested to know that I am speaking at Language Show Live on Friday afternoon. Uh, that is Friday the 10th of November at four o'clock. I am doing a talk about uh, Chinese science fiction, the rise of Chinese science fiction and how it kind of charts Chinese attitudes towards westernization. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can still sign up for a ticket. It's £11 and you get access to all of the talks uh, across the language show weekend. Uh, and the on-demand ones as well. So if that sounds interesting, please do check out The Language Show, and I will be glad to see you there. If it does not sound interesting, if that is not your thing at all, I completely understand, uh, and I will see you in two weeks for Saturday breakfast once again. But do stay with Teachers Talk Radio all weekend, because we have a financial takeover going on. So over on our Twitter, there will be lots of talk over the weekend about financial education. And of course, we do have all of our usual interesting Saturday shows coming up uh, throughout the rest of today. Have yourselves a great rest of the weekend. Stay safe if the storm is still raging where you are. And I will be speaking with you all very, very soon. Thank you so much and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.